Hey guys, we'll be starting now. Um, Valentine's Day, yeah. Um, today's sermon will be on the tongue. Hopefully, um, one of these past Valentine's Days you received words of encouragement. Maybe not. Um, maybe in a Valentine's Day to come, you'll get one of those special words. So, If you have your Bibles, turn with me to James 3. That will be our text tonight. James chapter 3. So in preparing for this message, I did not time myself. Um, So hopefully I don't go for an hour, Um, but don't worry, I'll look at the clock. So make sure we end on a timely manner. Let me open in a word of prayer. Father in heaven, we come humbly before your word and we want to understand it. Because we know that when we read it, when we hear it, God, if we don't understand it first, it will not take root in our lives. So, Father, I pray that you would teach us through your spirit, help us to grasp what James is saying, and then help us to live in light of that truth. So be with us now, in your son's precious name. Amen. Death and life are in the power of the tongue. So says Proverbs 10, verse 8. There are many Proverbs like that. I'll read a few more. Proverbs 10, verse 11. The mouth of the righteous is a fountain of life, but the mouth of the wicked conceals violence. Proverbs 12, verse 18. There is one whose rash words are like sword thrusts, but the tongue of the wise brings healing. It's probably not hard for us to think of times in the past when we've received words that were hurtful, unkind, words that were cutting, left you discouraged, maybe even hopeless. It could be something that was spoken to you or written to you in a text or email. It could be something that was said to your face or something that was said behind your back and you found out later. It could have been well-intentioned, but just not sensitive or delivered in the right tone. Or maybe it was intended with hate and malice. And for myself, if I wanted to, I could easily look up an old email that I received from an older woman of faith, someone that I respect, someone who loves the Lord. But the language in this email was the kind of writing that takes a nail and drills it deep, and then leaves you in your pain without giving you hope. Stories like that abound, I'm sure, for many of you, all of you here. And if it hasn't been that bad yet, they're bound to come, as long as we're in this fallen world. But the opposite is true as well. And we've been blessed recipients of life-giving words, words that are gracious, words that are kind, understanding, uplifting, words that have strengthened you. It could have been a letter that you received or something spoken to you. It could be words that came at more eventful occasions in your life. Maybe it was at a church retreat. Uh, Maybe there were words from the pulpit or a small group leader. Maybe when you left home for college, something that was said to you by a parent or by a sibling. 
Or maybe there are words from close friends at a surprise birthday. You know, like Becca's big birthday bash. (laughs) Um, Is she here? Maybe not. Okay. Anyways, Um, it could be the small everyday moments, you know, in a greeting, in a prayer, over a meal, uh, in a classroom lecture. Uh, When I graduated college and I left to go to work in Japan, uh, a friend of mine, who was at the time uh, a high school student, and she's now your age, um, she wrote a set of cards for me, and they were each in an envelope. On the front of the envelope began the words, when you feel tired, dot, dot, dot. The next envelope, when you feel lonely, dot, dot, dot. And on and on for 20 or so cards. And in that envelope, you find a note. You know, when you're tired, read this. When you're excited, read this. And the gift was a surprise. I didn't expect it. It was very thoughtful. And many of the cards were just straight-up scripture. And I remember sitting um, at LAX, waiting for my flight, flipping through some of those cards, um, feeling so thankful for this grace and for these words, and that someone would take the time to encourage me in such a meaningful way. And you and I know what it's like to receive words that lift up the soul and words that can crush your spirit, that can pierce your soul. As believers, we're stewards. We don't just receive words, though. We give them. We can either give life with our words or give death. And we need our passage tonight, James 3, We need to hear and heed the warnings that James gives here. We need it because we can easily forget the potentially destructive impact of our words. We need it because we need to think what our words really say about ourselves, about our hearts. The consequences of not heeding these warnings are just too great. And we need this message Because we live in a culture today that tells you that you are free to say whatever you want to say. You have the freedom of speech. And it's a good thing that we have the freedom of speech. But it does not give us the license to say whatever we want to say. And of course the government recognizes this because there has to be restrictions on our speech. And that's why there are laws against libel and perjury. But the prevailing attitude of our culture of ungodliness is this. For the most part, as long as it's not on a professional level or on a huge scale, you still have the freedom to say whatever your heart desires to say. It's okay if you lie occasionally. It's not that bad. I mean, you're not seriously hurting other people. Swearing and cursing, they're just words. It's just a way of venting frustration. And gossip, you can call it that, but sometimes you just got to spill your guts out about someone you don't like. And sensual jokes, I mean, come on, it's funny, and you make people laugh. That's how the world thinks. But Beacon, that must not be the air we breathe. We live and breathe the air of the life-giving words of Scripture. The standard for our speech is not dictated by the world, but by the Word. James 1.18 tells us that we've been brought forth by the Word, 
We are not of the world. We've been brought forth. But are we still acting and talking like those in the world? That's why this message in James 3 is so important for us. The key idea here is this. Your faith is expressed by how you speak. Your faith is expressed by how you speak. Your words set you apart. They distinguish you. They mark you out. You could tell when you're talking to someone, oh, this person really loves the Lord, and you're encouraged. You're talking to someone, and, then, and you wonder, hmm, and he says he believes, but by what he says, I'm not so sure. Or, you know, this guy, I could clearly tell he's hard-hearted. He's a hater of God. Your faith is expressed by how you speak. And where do I get this? At the end of chapter 2 in verse 26, right before our section, he says, faith apart from works is dead. A part of your works is the words that come out of your mouth. That's how you can tell if, you're, if you have true faith. In verse, or chapter 1, verse 26, James says, if anyone thinks his, he's religious and does not bridle his tongue but deceives his heart, this person's religion is worthless. How do you know if your religion is worthless, if your faith is not the real thing? James says, it'll come out in how you use your tongue. In chapter 3, he gives us two major warnings about your tongue. And those, that's the, the outline. This is why your tongue is such a big deal. The first, verses 1 through 6, beware of the power of your tongue. Verses 7 to 12, beware of the inconsistency of your tongue. The power and the inconsistency of your tongue. So let's take a look at the, the first section, the power of the tongue. And how does James draw attention to the power of the tongue? He does it in two main ways. You consider the teacher and you consider the size of the tongue. Consider the teacher in verses 1 to 2. Let me read. Not many of you should become teachers, my brothers, for you know that we who teach will be judged with greater strictness, for we all stumble in many ways. And if anyone does not stumble in what he says, he is a perfect man, able also to bridle his whole body. And it's helpful to know what's going on in the background. It's the first century when the book of James was written, and you had rabbis, teachers of the law who were revered in the Jewish community. In the early church, uh, believers in Christ, the equivalent of a rabbi was the teacher, the pastor. He would have also likely been esteemed for his position in the church. Later on, after James is written, the Apostle Paul says in his, his epistles that the teacher, he's a gift to the church. And elders as well. Those elders who rule well, are to be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. That's what Paul says in 1 Timothy 5. So it makes sense that in James's day, there were people who wanted to be teachers. Now, it's not like, um, it wasn't like how it is currently in Japan. And I bring up Japan because I'm somewhat familiar with the condition of the church there. Average age of the pastor there is about 60 or older. Many of them are retiring. 
Um, there are congregations that don't have a pastor, and I was in one of those for two years. Young men are few in the church, and even if there were men, uh, they, they wouldn't, many of them would not be aspiring to be a pastor, and there are many reasons for that. Um, even last week, I met a guy uh, who's Japanese-American. Um, he's living in Missouri now, but uh, he spent his childhood, a part of it, growing up in Japan and going to church there. And based on what he saw, based on his observations, he said he never wanted to be a pastor. And he remembers one day looking outside at a garbage man, picking up uh, trash with his truck, and he thought to himself, you know, I would rather be that guy than be a pastor. The fun thing, the fun thing is he's, he's now a pastor. Yeah? So the Lord saved him and worked in his life. Um, and I'm sure he would now uphold the dignity of even a garbage collector. You know, that he values their work, I'm sure. Um, but that attitude that my uh, friend had um, when he was a kid, I mean, it wasn't the attitude that people in James's day had. And teachers held prestige and people sought after this position. What does James say to this? He gives a warning. Slow down. Not many should be teachers. Why? Because you'll be more strictly judged. And verse 1 is a particularly sobering text for someone like me who's teaching this very moment. And teachers, by the nature of their profession, use a lot of words. They have greater influence for good or ill. You can misconstrue one subtle point of doctrine, a key doctrine, and you have the potential to lead 50 or hundreds or even millions of people to damnation. That is as bad as it can get, but it's the reality. There are people today who would claim to be a Christian, who would speak on behalf of the church, and they teach that Jesus is not God, that he's a created being. There are people who teach today that salvation is by faith and works. can't be by faith alone. They'll go to James 2 and say, look, a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. There are people who teach that God loves everyone. Jesus died for everyone. Therefore, everyone's going to heaven. No one's going to hell. It's called universalism. Beacon, you must be a Berean. And the words that come out of this pulpit on Sunday mornings or, or here on Friday nights, you must test them and test my words from the scriptures if what I say matches with a right understanding of scripture. But sadly, churchgoers who might not um, think consciously of their attitude towards Scripture, of being a Berean, they can be easily swayed, tossed to and fro by every wind of doctrine, by the charisma of the preacher, his winsomeness, her eloquence, and persuasive speech. But it doesn't have to be just a matter of eternal life or eternal death. It could also be because the pastor is poorly trained 
And so the counsel and the teaching that comes from the pulpit is not as informed as it could be. So it could tend towards legalism on the one hand or antinomianism on the other hand. Uh, legalism, you got to work, you know, to, to earn a right standing with God. Or antinomianism, um, you're saved by grace so you can live however you want. The, the preacher might be a one-track guy, you know, saying the same thing over and over again. He might be riding a favorite theological hobby horse, not giving the whole counsel of God. What is the result of that? Malnourished flock. Unbalanced diet for the people of God. And it doesn't have to be about teaching either. Um, it could be that he is preaching orthodoxy. You know, the profound riches of God's word. But his life is contradicting what he says from the pulpit. And people might look at that and think, wow, whatever he's teaching can't be the real thing if his life is like that. That is the weight that falls on every teacher of God's word. So this is really an encouragement for you to, to continue praying for Pastor Francis uh, for Pastor Kim, and also for myself when I preach. Um, we all need it. I need it. Um, teachers have influence for good or ill. But that doesn't get you off the hook. James says in verse 2, For we all stumble, in many words, and if anyone does not stumble in what he says, he's a perfect man, able also to bridle his whole body. So teachers will be more strictly judged because they, they use more words and because they have greater influence. But, he's, but everyone's speech matters. You don't have to be a teacher to teach others. Jesus said in the Great Commission, make disciples of all the nations. How? By teaching them to observe all that he has commanded. Because you are a disciple of Christ, you all have a responsibility to teach others. You may not have the, the official title or the formal recognition of a pastor or a teacher, but you are commanded to teach. You might not be a pastor, but Paul says in Romans 15, 14, he says to believers in Rome, you yourselves are full of goodness, filled with all knowledge and able to instruct one another. And that word for instruct, um, it's nutheteo in the Greek. That's where we get nuthetic counseling, if you've ever heard that before. It means to warn or admonish, uh, something that pastors are supposed to do. But Paul says, you can do it. You are able to instruct, to admonish, to counsel one another. James says himself in chapter 2, verse 12, and he says it's not just to teachers or would-be teachers. He says it's to everyone. So speak and so act as those who are to be judged under the law of liberty. So this principle in chapter 3, verses 1 and 2, it extends to each and every one of you. Everyone has influence. And every one of you as college students, you have influence on your peers, your classmates, those who are younger than you. How are you wielding your influence by your words? Are you influencing others for good? How are you building up your brothers and sisters in the faith? 
and to unbelievers that you influence? Are you conveying the truth of the gospel or truths of a biblical worldview? Can those who hear you and listen to you talk, can those who see your posts on Facebook or Twitter or whatever, can they walk away with the good model of how a Christian laughs with others, you know, how a Christian jokes with others, how a Christian encourages others, and how a Christian points out sin in others? Would you feel comfortable if those people you influence, maybe the younger ones, if they imitated you, the way you talk and the way you write? Or would you feel ashamed because of what they learned from you, the way you use your words, maybe insensitive, even a bit harsh, manipulative, sensual, bending the truth, making people laugh at the expense of someone, thoughtlessly hurting that reputation of someone. James says, beware of the power of your tongue. First, we've looked at teachers. Now we look at the size of the tongue in verses three to six. Let me read. If we put bits into the mouths of horses so that they obey us, we guide their whole bodies as well. Look at the ships also. Though they are so large and are driven by strong winds, they are guided by a very small rudder wherever the will of the pilot directs. So also, the tongue is a small member, yet it boasts of great things. How great a forest is set ablaze by such a small fire, and the tongue is a fire. The unrighteous world is established among our members as the tongue staining the whole body, setting on fire the entire course of life and set on fire by hell. People who heard James or read James would have understood these word pictures. I mean, James is a masterful illustrator. These things were common in his day. Something as small as bits in a horse's mouth, they can guide a massive 1,800-pound horse. And something as small as a rudder, can guide a large and sturdy ship. Something as small as your tongue can boast of great things. This last one, uh, one translation reads this way. The human tongue is physically small, but what tremendous effects it can boast of. And at this point in the middle of verse 5, James starts to turn from neutral illustrations to um, negative illustration depicting not just the, the power of the tongue, but the destructive power of something so small. Um, this sentence uh, in the ESV, it begins, how great a forest. Literally in the Greek, it's behold, look, consider. James is saying, consider what? Consider what a great forest is set on fire by a small spark. And in, if you look in the Greek, actually, the word for great and small, they're actually the same word. So that word can change its meaning depending on the context. It can go either way, great or small, depending on how the author uses it. So James uses that same word to convey two totally opposite ideas. The great and destructive power of the tongue is out of proportion to its small size. 
in verse 6. No more similes. Now directly, a metaphor. The tongue, it really is a fire. It's the most difficult of all the parts of your body to control. It's through your tongue and mine and everyone else's that the wicked world comes to expression. It stains the whole person. James said back in chapter 1, verse 27, to keep yourself unstained from the world. But a tongue that's driven by the world will stain and corrupt the whole person. Every bit of you is affected. But not only does it corrupt the whole person, it leaves a trail of destruction throughout your whole entire life. Where does this power come from? James says it comes from hell. Literally, the Greek is Gehenna. And Jesus uses that. That's the only other time it's used. Jesus uses it in the Gospels 11 times. And every time it refers to hell. And in, in the Hebrew, actually, when it, where it's translated from, um, it means the Valley of Hinnom. Um, so it's a place name is the point that I'm trying to get across. It's a valley that's just outside of Jerusalem. And in Jeremiah's day, there were pagan child sacrifices offered right there. I mean, next to Jerusalem. Um, This is the place later on where they disposed trash and garbage and they burned things there. They burned all the rubbish. So it's a fitting depiction, a graphic image of hell. That's the source of this destructive power of your tongue. It's the father of lies, the devil himself, as the chief resident of hell, who inspires the life-taking, death-giving use of the tongue. You don't need to think long and hard to see how true all this is. A bitter heart towards somebody, it can take root. And every act of annoyance or inconvenience, it can add fuel to pent-up anger. And when that anger finally reaches boiling point, you burst out in a moment, spewing out words that you instantly regret but can never take back. One small lie can lead to a web of lies. And soon, you're caught. And by that time, you've betrayed the trust of so many. It'll take years before you regained their trust. An unfounded false rumor spreads like wildfire. A person's good name and reputation is sullied. You could be the one spreading that rumor, or you could even be the target of that false rumor. You've heard the expression before, sticks and stones may break my bones, but words will never hurt me. But scripture says otherwise. Words can destroy people. Can anyone tame this tongue? We move on to the next section. Beware of the inconsistency of the tongue. Verses 7 to 8. For every kind of beast and bird, of reptile and sea creature, can be tamed and has been tamed by mankind. But no human being can tame the tongue. So there we go. We find the answer to the question, can anyone tame the tongue? No human being. In Genesis 1, we learn God created man to rule over the living creatures that God made. Today, you can go to a zoo or an aquarium, see lions, 
giraffes, dolphins. Mankind can tame and has tamed all other creatures except hippos. Uh, One time I went to a zoo and this hippo aimed his urine at my friend. You know, it's crazy. It was kind of weird. But they're unruly, you know. But anyways, people can tame hippos too. They can tame all creatures. But the point is, you can't tame your tongue. James says, it's a restless evil, a full of deadly poison. I probably should not have said that thing about hippos. Anyways, James, he's used this word restless before. It's a restless evil. And back in chapter 1, verse 8, he's a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. That word, unstable. Um, so this instability of the tongue, how is it manifested? Verses 9 and 10. With it, we bless our Lord and Father, and with it we curse people who are made in the likeness of God. From the same mouth come blessing and cursing. My brothers, these things ought not to be so. Wouldn't you say that maybe the highest use of your tongue, the most excellent way you can use your words, probably would be to praise and bless your Creator. Out of all the things that your mouths can utter, it's probably to glorify God. That's the greatest way you can use it. And the the Jews expressed their devotion. Uh, You see it in rabbinic literature. Uh, One of the most common ways of addressing God was, blessed be the Holy One, blessed be He. And Christians in the early church also, they expressed their devotion to God. You see it in the letters of Paul and Peter. They both say, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. But here's the double-minded man in the letter of James. He wants to love God and love the world. And we learn in chapter 2, this man favors the rich and ignores the poor in Christ. In the second half of that chapter, the double-minded man says he, he has faith, but he fails to demonstrate it in his works. So now in chapter 3, this double-minded man, he uses his tongue to to praise God, to sing words of of praise to him, to sing today, be sovereign grace or city of light. And at the same time, with the same tongue, he uses his words to curse men who are made in the likeness of God. To curse men, it was was more than just swearing or or cursing at someone um, in the sense of, Uh, just unwholesome language. It was calling on God, in effect, quote, to cut a person off from any possible blessing and to consign that person to hell. What did Jesus say about those who do this kind of cursing? He said, bless them. Luke 6, 28, bless those who who curse you. Pray for those who abuse you. What did Paul say? Romans 12, verse 14, bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. Why? Because they're creatures made in God's image just like you. And that is the foundation of biblical anthropology. I mean, you won't hear that at your university, at your college. If you take an anthropology class, who's going to hear that you and every single one in this room is a creature made in God's image. What is 
man. Let me quote an MIT professor. We are nothing but bones, tissues, gelatinous membranes, neurons, electrical impulses, and chemicals. He continues, we are a bunch of atoms like trees and like donuts, is what he says. That's ridiculous. That is sad. You know, the end of that is nihilism, sheer hopelessness. But you and I, um, and not just believers, but everyone, I mean, we're categorically distinct from other living things, from animals. We're made in the image of God. And that is an important point that we must not take for granted. Because when a whole society, a whole community is not shaped by this understanding that you and I are made in God's image, chaos ensues. That's why you have sex trafficking. That's why you have slavery. Because people just become commodity, possessions. So James goes on, why is instability of the tongue, inconsistent use of the tongue, why is that such a big deal? Why does he say these things ought not to be so? Verses 11 and 12. Does a spring pour forth from the same opening both fresh and salt water? Can a fig tree, my brothers, bear olives or a grapevine produce figs? Neither can a salt pond yield fresh water. Why is the inconsistent use of your tongue such a big deal? Because it exposes your heart. It reveals what your heart is really like. And Jesus said, it's not what goes into the mouth that defiles a person, but what comes out of the mouth. He says in Matthew 11, uh, 15, verses 18 to 20, but what comes out of the mouth proceeds from the heart, and this defiles a person. For out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, slander. These are what defile the person. And he says the same thing, not just to the disciples, um, which is what he did in chapter 15, but he says the same thing to the Pharisees in chapter 12. He says um, in verses 33 to 35, Either make the tree good and its fruit good, or make the tree bad and its fruit bad, for the tree is known by its fruit. You brood of vipers, how can you speak good when you are evil? For out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. The good person out of his good treasure brings forth good, and the evil person out of his evil treasure brings forth evil. Words don't come out of nowhere. They don't just appear out of thin air. They have a source. And your mouth is a barometer of your spirituality. Now, if somehow um, I asked the right question and got you excited, got you going, and you were talking for five minutes straight, what is it that would come out of your mouth? What are the things that you're most passionate for? And even the quietest person, you know, with the right setting, with the right question, you can get them going. So what is it that you really love? What is it that you really believe? What is it that you really desire? You can attempt to use words to cover up your heart. You can present a facade. 
a false image of yourself, but what you truly are in the inside will inevitably surface, both in what you do and in what you say. Only a renewed heart, changed and transformed by the gospel of Christ. Only by a renewed heart can you produce pure speech. If you're not right with God and walking daily in his presence, you cannot consistently speak God-glorifying words. And in Matthew 12, which I read earlier, Jesus continues to say this to the Pharisees. I tell you, on the day of judgment, people will give account for every careless word they speak. For by your words, you will be justified. And by your words, you will be condemned. That's why James warns us here. Beware of the power of the tongue and beware of the inconsistency of the tongue. Your faith is expressed by how you speak. But I don't want to end it here. Um, Scripture's not silent about how we can grow in the use of our tongue. I mean, God says in 1 Timothy 4.12, yeah, Paul speaking to Timothy, let no one despise you for your youth, but set the believers an example in speech, in conduct, in love, in faith, in purity. And speech is specifically mentioned. Your youth, Beacon, um, it doesn't excuse you from setting an example to other believers, especially to those who are younger than you, but to all believers. So I'm going to say, state eight principles in the form of a question for how we can grow in the use of our tongue. So first, what is it that fills your heart? What is it that fills your heart? Is it the word of God? Are they testimonies of God's goodness revealed in scripture, God's promises, his truths? If our mouth truly speaks out of the abundance of the heart, then are we storing up the word and treasuring it, meditating on it? Psalm 119 verse 11 says, I have stored up your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. Second, how often do you wonder the good works of God in your life? How often do you wonder the good works of God in your life? So not just scripture, but do you meditate on his providence in your life as well? You know, it could be at the end of the day or at the end of a long week. Do you look back and give thanks to God specifically for the things that he's done in your life that week or that day? You know, God strengthened you to study faithfully. He brought a friend to encourage you with a timely word, especially when you were downcast. This Um, reflecting on God's goodness and providence, this is how we combat an attitude of grumbling, of complaining, of being discontent. And we can let our minds so easily dwell on what's hard or, or what's bad. But we have to remember Psalm 145, verses five to seven. On the glorious splendor of your majesty and on your wonderful works, I will meditate. Men shall speak of the power of your awesome acts, and I will tell of your greatness. They shall eagerly utter the memory of your abundant goodness and will shout joyfully of your righteousness. You can't proclaim to others 
what you yourself haven't meditated on, and if you, if you haven't savored the goodness of God in your life, how can you expect to speak eagerly of it? Third, uh, it's a long question. Uh, what are the opportunities in the rhythm of your life where you can share with other believers the goodness of God? What are the opportunities in the rhythm of your life where you can share with other believers the goodness of God? So you have Friday night beacon. You're here tonight. Sunday morning worship. Maybe Sunday afternoon lunch. Uh, maybe you go to a midweek Bible study, a large group. Uh, maybe you have a small group that you meet uh, um, during the middle of the week as well. How intentional and prayerful are you when you gather with the people of God? Hebrews 10, 24, 25 says, Let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works. Now, how do we do that? Well, by not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another. And we encourage one another with our words. Fourth, uh, how do we grow in the use of our tongue? This question. How do you assess when a conversation turns to talking about someone negatively? could be you when you're about to talk, to talk about someone negatively, or you can listen or hear someone talking about someone negatively. How do you assess that? Um, three questions. Is it true? Is it true? Proverbs 18.13 says, If one gives an answer before he hears, it is his folly and shame. Do you have all the facts before you make a judgment? Are your sources reliable? Proverbs 18, 17 says this, The one who states his case first seems right until the other comes and examines him. Is your assessment and evaluation of whatever information that you heard about someone, is that only one-sided? When you know that your data is limited, you don't know everything, you, don't, you haven't heard everything, um, are you giving the person the benefit of the doubt? And 1 Corinthians 13, 7 says, Love believes all things. It's not a gullible belief, um, and you shouldn't be taken advantage of. Jesus, uh, God says, be wise as serpents. Um, but is your tendency to assume the worst about people? You could be right, but you could also be wrong, and spreading that false rumor would be devastating. Um, suppose that it is true. You have all the facts. It's verified, but the next question I would ask, is it necessary? Not only is it true, is it necessary? Um, will it give grace to those who hear? Does the person that you're talking to need to know this information? Or is it idle talk that because of your carelessness, you're going to destroy someone's reputation? Is it true? Is it necessary? Third, is it done with a critical spirit? This is you speaking or you're hearing somebody else speaking. Is it done with a critical spirit? Do you have the person's ultimate good in mind? Is that your motivation for why you feel, ne um, why you feel um, necessary to, to tell this? <laughs> Fifth, okay, how do you grow in the use of your tongue? Have you identified settings and relationships in your life 
where you are susceptible to an uncontrolled tongue. Settings and relationships. Maybe for settings, it could be when you're tired late at night. That's when it's easier to just say something rash. Um, or maybe, this is a setting, when the conversation turns to a whisper. It's not always the case, but when that happens, it, it could be a hint that, you know, something shared is not wholesome. Are there people in your life that you, you want to please, please more than you want to love and honor this individual? Based on times in the past when um, you've let your tongue slip, maybe you've engaged in gossip, maybe you've spoken badly about someone, have you asked yourself and thought through, man, what motivated that? Um, why did I say that? Why did I respond in that way? Because when we think through that, we'll gain wisdom to know how to better approach the same situation in the future. Three more. Number six, how do we grow in the use of our tongue? Do we pray over our tongue? Psalm nineteen fourteen, we sang it. It says, let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. Especially when, you're going, when you know you're going to encounter a situation that, you know, might be difficult for you, um, do you pray this? Psalm 141, verse 3, it says, Set a guard, O Lord, over my mouth. Keep watch over the door of my lips. I need your help, God. Help me tame the tongue. Seventh, how do you respond in a tense situation? Maybe the person that is speaking to you is angry, hostile. Proverbs 15.1 says this, A soft answer turns away wrath, but a harsh word stirs up anger. You uh, exercise care in what you say. You know, Proverbs 13.3 says, Whoever guards his mouth preserves his life. He who opens wide his lips comes to ruin. It doesn't mean you don't say anything, um, but maybe when, when somebody's asking you a question in a hostile, tense situation, do you feel like you need to give an answer immediately? You can say, let me think more about that before I give an answer. Proverbs fifteen twenty eight says this, the heart of the righteous person ponders how to answer, but the mouth of the wicked pours out evil things. Eighth, and this is our final point. How do you grow in the use of your tongue? Question is, how do you respond when you stumble in your speech? When you sin with your words? James says no human being can tame the tongue. Maybe you've breached someone's trust. Somebody shared something personal and deep with you and you have broken this person's confidence. Maybe you've said something to someone in anger. The grace of the gospel is that you can turn to Jesus Christ, to the only one who's ever perfectly tamed his tongue, lived a sinless, flawless, obedient life on your behalf, died your death, the death of a sinner, so that you can be forgiven and reconciled to God. And the amazing thing is that this gospel, the grace of this gospel, not only forgives you, but it gives us an opportunity to give life as well. And you can say to the one that you sinned against, that I'm sorry. 
and please forgive me for what I've done, for how I sinned against God and how I sinned against you in this way. When you do that, when you ask for forgiveness and repent, by your words, even when you sin, by how you respond to it, you can show Christ and the power of his gospel that trumps the destructive power of the tongue. With that said, um, let me pray and close our time, um, and then we'll get off into our small groups afterwards. Let's pray. <clears throat> gracious God, you are indeed gracious and kind. You use broken sinners like us to accomplish your great purposes. Father, um, thank you for this time. Thank you for your word. Thank you for James chapter 3. Because we know that this world um, is in chaos because of the unrighteous use of the tongue. God, whether it's um, in a few words, uh, like on a Twitter feed, or whether it's uh, just um, many, many words in a speech, God, this world gives abundant evidence of, of how we destroy one another with our words. But Father, we have been transformed. God, and so has our tongue been transformed. And Father, would you continue to do that work in us, even as we discuss in small group, talk about it. Help us, God, let these truths um, and principles that come from your word, let them, let them transform and shape how we use our tongue so that we can give grace and life to others instead of stealing and taking away life from others. Uh, bless us now that we may bless you with our tongue. In your son's precious name, amen.